And the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. Well, it's hard to believe that uh, this time three years ago, we had just entered a strange new land called lockdown. <laughs> Reading through my notes and thinking about what I said three years ago and looking at the liturgy that we, we were using, trying to work out what it meant to be in lockdown, trying to work out how to live in lockdown, trying to work out how to do online church. What did that even mean? And we did pretty well compared to many other places. I had to be careful on my Zoom calls with people in other parts of the world who did not have the same freedoms we had, who endured much higher rates of illness and death. And they longed for someone like Jacinda to be at the helm to make the decisions that we had made. And here we are out the other side, sort of, COVID's still around. And since then, we've had war in Ukraine and the effect that's had on the world economy. And over this year, we've had weather events in Gabriel, in this country, and in our diocese. It just seems to keep on going, doesn't it? And many of us are feeling tired, and some are fearful. In many ways, we are grieving. And grieving is tough work. For many, it feels like the dry bones of Ezekiel longing for life again. In our Gospel reading today, we find Jesus grieving too. Grieving for his friend Lazarus. Grieving with Mary and Martha. Grieving for his friends Mary and Martha. Weeping at their pain and loss. And there is a real sense that he is grieving for himself. Grieving for all that lies just ahead for himself and his followers. This is the hinge point of the Gospel of John. In John's Gospel, this is the last of the seven signs or miracles. And this last sign, the raising of Lazarus from death and illness, or illness and death, he says in verse 4, it is for God, the glory of God so that God's Son can be glorified through it. We usually read that to mean Jesus is talking about raising Lazarus. But ultimately, he's talking about the cross. In John's Gospel, God's Son is glorified on the cross. Not the resurrection, the cross. This last sign is really about what the raising of Lazarus will lead to. It is a sign. So it's not important in and of itself. It points to something else. This last sign will convince the Judean leaders that Jesus must die. And the rest of the Gospel will be focused on Jesus' journey into Jerusalem, the Last Supper, the arrest and trial, his crucifixion, and then resurrection. So while Lazarus being raised is pretty impressive, and it is pretty impressive, and while it provides 
the reason why the Judean leadership decide Jesus really did have to die, it's not the point of the story. It's just a sign. The point is that it acts as a signpost to Jesus' own death and resurrection. Jesus uses this astounding event to show that he is the resurrection and the life. I've not used the word resurrection for Lazarus because he will die again. I'm pretty sure that he dies again. And while he was dead, stinky dead, four days dead, Lazarus hears the voice of the Good Shepherd, which is one of the other I Am statements, and comes back to life. But it is his old mortal body. When Jesus is resurrected, it is a whole new way of being. And it is that that we are offered at the end of time, however we understand that. When death is defeated and humanity is restored and creation is renewed, that is the resurre resurrection. But Jesus doesn't just say that he is the resurrection. He also says that he is the life. And we often forget that. And life is now. Life is not everything being okay. Lazarus will die again. The brutality of Good Friday will happen. And many of his first disciples will be martyred. Life will continue to be hard and tough. Life is about how we live in the face of all that causes us grief. How we follow Lazarus' example and rest with Jesus as Lazarus does at the meal that follows this astounding event. What might that life look like for us with all that is going on for us now? Well, today I want to use the example of one of the famous people of this place as a way of exploring that. I want to look at Henny Tikiri Karamu, or Henny Pori, or Jane Foley. So, she is our saint. So what do we know about her, apart from we have a stained glass window? I invite you to turn around and talk to your neighbour and share all your knowledge about Henny Tikiri Karamu, and then we'll see what we know about her. Right, let's see if we can tell her story. What do we know about her? Anything? You're waiting to be enlightened. <laughs> <laughs> her mother was from Rotorua, so her mother was taken by Napui in the raid in the um, 1820s as a baby and was taken up to. Uh, after the raid on Makoya Island and as a baby was taken up to Bay of Islands uh, and she came from pretty important stock so she was um, kind of raised and kept because um, she was valuable. So yeah, uh, and she did end up back in Rorotoroa uh, after her second husband. Did she go to the mission school in the Bay of Islands? Yes. Yes, so um, after she was born, 
Uh, her, her father was, well, there's two stories about who her father is. Her story is a little murky. Um, there's various versions of it. Um, but her grandson, Alfred Foley, says that her, and this was the person on her death certificate, her father was an Irish sea captain, and um, her, her mother was payment for muskets. Um, so they were together for seven weeks. The sea captain disappeared. She was pregnant uh, and of no further use to Nahui, so she went to live with the missionaries. And um, so Henny grew up at the mission school in Paihia. Uh, and then after Kororareth was sacked, everyone was kind of evacuated back to Auckland. So that's when she left the Bay of Islands for the first time. What else do we know about her? Did you hear that song before? Yes. Well, maybe. So. Yes. So she she is the one in our window that we look at. Um, so she is remembered as the one who gave water to Colonel Booth after the Battle of Gay Car, risking her own life to do that. Um, again, that's debated. So it was initially thought that that was Hinare Wiremu Tarata who did that, um, but later on. She claimed to do that, uh, and she did that in part um, because she was claiming a war pension. And so um, there's a letter that you can find on the internet where she wrote to the people who gave out the war pensions and said, um, I was a Pukahinahina, I fought there on the side of the King Kingites um, because of my brother. Uh, we'll come back to that. Uh, but I was the one who gave water to Colonel Booth. Uh, I then fought for the government through these periods. So I should be, and I was a sergeant, so I should be receiving the war pension. How long did she live for? A long time. She died. She was uh, born in about um, 1840, and she died in 1933. So she was, 19, she was 93 when she died. So after they went back to, anyone else know anything about Enzo? So after they, uh, as far as we can tell, so there are various versions of the story, um, they went, there was a whole group that went back to Auckland, and Alfred Foley says there were a whole lot of orphans in that group, and a man called Richard Russell gathered them up, persuaded the bishop, uh, that would have been Selwyn, uh, that they should be made wards of the church because there were, there were no parents uh, and he then undertook to care for them and to educate them. Now uh, at that point some of uh, Henny's Fanonga came back up from Rotorua and took her and her mother back to Rotorua and they were there for at least a year and she went to the mission school there for a while. Um, but also while she was there, she was taught about her whakapapa, who she was, uh, and that was important later on. But then her, Richard Russell came down and kind of took them back up to Auckland, where she was educated at the mission schools, and at some point came into contact with some uh, Catholics as well. So she, in the end, she was well educated uh, and spoke Māori and English and French, because the Mission, the Catholic missionaries were French missionaries, so she was fluent in French as well. And she loved class, the classics, she learned, knew how to play the piano, uh, and she was also a very good shot. Um, 
she ended up uh, eventually, when she was about 15, marrying to Kiri Karamu, who was also from Ottawa, and um, whether that was in Auckland or uh, up in the Bay of Islands, and they went up there. He was a gold, he was a kauri digger, but um, Um, they went back to Auckland and she had a number of children to him so that's starting pretty young uh, and uh, he farmed in Waiheke according to Alfred Foley other people say that they came down to Karikari but I think that's confusing the story later on and um, she taught at the mission school at Three Kings and it's at Three Kings she came into contact with um, the, the leadership of the Kingitanga, particularly Wiramu Tamihana Tarakupi <coughs> Te Waharoa, who was one of the leaders of the King, Kingitanga, and Cliff's going to talk about him after Gate Pade. Uh, and he was one of, the, one of the people who worked tirelessly for peace to find a way that uh, Māori self rule could be recognised. Uh, and Māori could continue to look after their own affairs and continue to flourish um, within a New Zealand, with the New Zealand government. Uh, and um, the, the failure of that um, led to war. And, and a lot of those people sent their children up to the mission schools to be educated because they could see the benefit of Pākehā knowledge. So they weren't anti-Pākehā, they just also were very pro-Māori, so that was very influential for her. And then in 1860, so in 1861, she and her husband separated because he didn't think she was spending enough time with him and she was busy with other stuff. So her children went down to Maraita, I think, and stayed with her mother, uh, and she continued at the mission school. And then in 1863, the government said that all Māori in Auckland had to sign an oath of allegiance to the Crown and had to surrender their weapons. So a whole lot of them left and went, not on your life. Uh, so she became part of the raiding parties out of Hanua uh, and were tracked and hunted uh, and eventually uh, made it through the British lines and went to um, the, the village of uh, Wiremu Tamihana, just out of uh, Matamata, Waharoa. Uh, and eventually uh, came here. Now, she talks about her brother Neri, but Alfred's pretty clear that her mother only had one child. So how did she have brothers and sisters? Well, uh, it's understood that all those children who came out of Kororareka and Paihia and were taken down to Auckland and became wards either of the church of Russell or Richard Russell were in effect her brothers and sisters. They saw each other as brothers and sisters. They were whanaunga, even if they weren't blood whanaunga. So um, they were all her whanaunga, uh, and so she has sisters and brothers from that time. Um, so she ended up here uh, with Pirirako, uh, who are the hapu on the other side of the wairoa, and they were in the trenches on the other side of the road. Um, on a bit, there was a little kind of pass structure um, at the other side of the car park um, and their job was to stop the British coming around underneath but also to provide crossfire. Um, they were 
blasted out of there, um, but they returned once the fighting started. Um, after the fighting, uh, somebody took water to Colonel Booth, and uh, for a long time it was thought that it was Taratoa. So uh, on some of the websites it talks about there being a window dedicated to her at Litchfield Cathedral built by Bishop Selwyn. It's not, it's actually dedicated to Taratoa, because Selwyn was clear that it was Taratoa who gave that water. So it was later when she was applying for her pension that she said she was the one. So um, that's when the conflict starts. Now a lot of Māori here will say it wasn't her, it was Taratoa, and I don't know whether that's because she's Arawa, and they're not going to give any credit to Arawa for anything, uh, uh, or whether it was Taratoa. But Pirinako are really clear that it was her and them. So all of them took water to British soldiers. Um, so I'm an Anglican, so my middle way is that they both took water and maybe with support of Pirinako. Uh, the important thing is water was given. So after the battle, I should say actually, while she was in the Hanua Rangers, she was with her mother and her children. Uh, and one of those children was a small infant and uh, Alfred talks about having to wrap the, the infant's mouth with flax to keep it quiet while they went through the British lines. Um, one of the other groups that had tried to go through the British lines was massacred. Um, so it was really important that everyone was as quiet as possible. So imagine that with children sneaking through British lines to return back to your people. Um, it was pretty hard. So her mother uh, went back to Rotorua with the children. She fought here, went back down to Rotorua. And actually while she was there, uh, she then changed sides, in effect. Um, so central to who she was was her faith, her Christianity. Uh, that motivated her in everything. And she then uh, fought on the side of the British against the Ho-Ho, who she saw as uh, not good for Māori and certainly not Christian. Uh, and while the original prophet was a prophet of peace, his message of peace had been distorted and become um, the basis for violence. And so they, she was involved with her uncle in capturing one of the Ho-Ho leaders who was trying to sneak through Ottawa land. And then she went and fought with Gilbert Mayer across around the Portica and Whakatane and was involved there as well. Um, and that's where she had the rank of sergeant. But she then came home and was involved with trade. So all the trade from Rotorua was going through Makatu, uh, which was also Arawa. Uh, and while she was in Makatu, she met a Dennis Foley, an Irishman um, and uh, a pub owner. Uh, and they got married and they moved to the Irish settlement of Katikati. So that's where they lived. Um, so a pub owner and an alcoholic. So not the greatest of combinations. Uh, they were married in 1869. In 1870 he attacked her, uh, uh, broke her arm and, and did some other damage to her and she took out a non-restraining order against him. Uh, and uh, he was sent off to the loony bin in Auckland. 
Um, and lots of, lots of online stuff will say that's where the marriage ended. But actually they had three children together. So if, unless you pop them out in one year, <laughs> so to speak, um, it's, Alfred says that's not where the, uh, the marriage ended. And they actually, he came back uh, and they lived and farmed in Kati Kati. Uh, they had three more children. Uh, he eventually, um, coming back from town one night, uh, fell into the river and drowned. Uh, and at that point, all her children were grown up and she returned home to Rotorua, um, leaving one of the farms there for one of her children. Um, this is the flag that she uh, created for one of the leaders when she was in the Hanua Ranges. Um, and uh, that's an Auckland museum. People didn't know what it was, actually. And it was kind of being cut up and used as rags for a while until they worked out that actually maybe it was of historical significance and should be looked after. So when she was in Rotorua, she um, worked as an interpreter. She continued with her trade and she worked as an interpreter for, in the, for Māori in the Māori Land Court. And her work there was to help Māori uh, reclaim their land, keep their land. Uh, so there were a number of strong people who worked in that context. Uh, so the Māori Land Court was a, was a mechanism by which the Crown uh, forced Māori to divide up their land onto individual title. And then they would charge them a fee for doing that. And most Māori couldn't afford to pay the fee, so they then had to sell the land to the Crown to pay the fee for doing something they didn't want to do in the first place. So uh, it was a great legal way of getting land when land wasn't for sale. So she worked in that context and helped protect that land and help Māori reclaim that land. And some of the land she reclaimed was her own Fano land, which she then was able to build a house for a mother and and do things like that. She also became a strident member of the Women's Christian's Temperance Union. Uh, and one of the consequences of the Women's Christian Temperance Union was suffrage. the suffragettes. And why were the suffragettes into temperance? Because the men wouldn't bring in prohibition. And so the only way that was ever going to happen was if a woman had the vote. So they became ardent workers for suffragettes and brought in the vote in this country and they nearly succeeded. The end of the First World War, prohibition was brought in and the only people, the people who managed to stop that were the returning soldiers who went, hell no, we're not going to have no alcohol, thank you very much, we've just spent four years in Europe, you're not going to deny us our beer when we come home, thank you very much. Um, and she was a very significant figure in the Rotorua area uh, working for that uh, and was the honorary secretary for the Māori Women's Christian Temperance Union for the whole of Rotorua uh, and, um, and worked particularly in the Ohenimutu area. Uh, so what might we say about this person? Well, first of all, uh, she died... Um, on the 24th of June, 1933, at uh, the age of 93, or 92-93, and um, she's buried in Rotorua Cemetery. There is a Foley Street in Rotorua named after her. Um, 
She lived a tough life, was filled with hardship, injustice, and grief. Um, neither of her marriages were particularly good. But at the centre of all of that was her faith that allowed her to work tirelessly for the welfare of her people, both fighting for the Kingitanga, fighting against the Ho-Ho, working for uh, her people in the Māori land court, uh, and working tirelessly in the, in the Māori Women's Christian Temperance Union. All of that came out of her faith. She is remembered as somebody of sharp intelligence. Um, Alfred says that in another time, she may well have been able to go on and go to university and, and study. Um, she was ambitious and eager for advancement, but she was fundamentally a champion for the rights of women and the underprivileged. So in a time of huge upheaval and massive change, I mean, just think of the change from 1840 through to 1933 for Māori in this country, where they were the majority of the population and controlled all things to a minority uh, where their culture was being sidelined and there was active work to assimilate them to wipe out their culture and language. And all of that, holding that strong faith uh, and living life as she understood it. So that is who's in our window. A remarkable woman. Strong woman. So I invite you to turn around to your neighbours for a few minutes and to think about how does she help us think about what does living the resurrection and the life mean for us today in our uncertain times? How does it help us think about what does that life look like and what does it invite us into? Have a conversation.